I nearly made it. I was more worried about tripping over the stairs, not the chair. All right. Uh, if you've been part of the home groups, uh, or if you're at the Truth of the Gospel conference, uh, this topic of Christ's sinlessness has come up. And as believers, we don't dispute Christ's sinlessness, of course. And there are many verses of Scripture that uh, tell us Christ uh, tell us of Christ being sinless, and is also a major part of what we believe, of course. And without this doctrine, there is no salvation. Uh, Christ himself claimed to be sinless. Uh, in John 8:46, for instance, where he asked the Pharisees, which one of you convicts me of sin? In John 15:10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just, I, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The writers of the epistles also affirm his sinlessness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor deceit was found in his mouth. And there are many other places that we can find uh, such claims, and of course, during his temptations in the wilderness, um, and his struggles in the garden, Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Gethsemane Never did he uh, disobey God or fall into sin. Now, unless, of course, you're a full-blown heretic, uh, this doctrine is not disputed, and, uh, and it is a doctrine we hold quite dearly, of course. What is disputed is the question of whether Jesus, as a man, could have sinned. Theologians usually refer to Christ as being either impeccable, which means not able to sin, or peccable, able to sin. I'm sure you won't be surprised. There's fancy Latin phrases um, with all these doctrines, or Greek, and I'm thank goodness there's no Greek ones because I'll get smashed by Demetra over there. But there's Latin ones. And uh, these, uh, the words peccable and impeccable are derived from the Latin phrases non posse peccari, which means not able to sin, or posse non peccari, able not to sin, or in other words, could have sinned but didn't. So, able to sin or able not to sin. The argument usually is based on, and it comes down to Christ's temptations in the wilderness, if Christ could not sin... Were his temptations real and was he a real human? So if you go to Hebrews 4 and we'll read um, where we were, where Jai read before, from verse 14, uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 15, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We see here Jesus, the great high priest, who is able to sympathize with us. Because he lived and breathed as a man on this earth with us. 
He felt the infirmities we feel, the emotions, and ultimately experienced death like we will one day. We are fallen creatures. We suffer because of this. Sometimes in our struggles, uh, we feel like God feels like he's far away and that he can't help us, and sometimes we think he just doesn't understand my situation. We all go through things like that. But this, this verse puts that argument away. Jesus knows exactly what we are going through. Because he isn't just somewhere up in heaven, far away and passive. He actually became a man and lived amongst us and therefore knows exactly our situation. Now, we know, of course, our biggest problem is sin. And that problem is sending us to hell. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do about that to justify to, uh, on our own to justify us before God and we know as Christians we know as true believers that it is Christ who was able to accomplish this for us on our behalf with his death on the cross because being sinless his sacrifice was the only one that could be made to atone for our sins not only did he have to be sinless but he also had to be fully human too this aspect of Christ cannot be overlooked. For him to redeem fallen man, he himself had to become man, fully man. Not a superman that walked around and nothing bothered him. He had to be just like us. That's why here in uh, Hebrews 4 and, and in Hebrews chapter 2 as well, previous to that, the writer tells us that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was sinless. Now, just stop and think about that for a second um, because it's we know that. We know he's sinless. It's that's, We say that all the time, but if you think about it for a second, it's actually really amazing when you consider it. He went through his whole life and never sinned. Not once in thought or attitude or action in his whole life did he sin. All it would have taken was one lustful look or one covetous desire and it would be all over. Throughout his life, he was perfectly obedient to the Father, as Philippians 2.8 says. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's... It's really quite amazing when you think about it. But this is where the issue um, that we're talking about begins in terms of Christ's sinlessness. If he is not able to sin, does that, in fact, make him a superman that can face temptation with his head held high because he knows he's going to easily overcome it? That This is why um, these two arguments that that there are these two arguments, and they focus their attention on the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. If he was tempted in all ways just like us, that, does that mean that he could have sinned but didn't? So the first argument that we're going to look at, the first point, if you want to write it down, is the argument of the posse non peccari, peccari, however you say it, able not to sin. In other words, could he sin but didn't? 
So in the 19th century, there was a Scottish uh, theologian named Edward Irving. He was one of the first to question this doctrine, the doctrine of impeccability, so the doctrine that Christ could not sin. He taught that Christ took on uh, fallen human flesh. So although he believed that Christ was sinless and he affirmed that it was necessary for our salvation, uh, his views provoked much controversy which led him actually being disposed from ministry. He said this about Christ's humanity, and I quote, The flesh of Christ, like my flesh, was in its proper nature mortal and corruptible. This, he believed, uh, was the case because there was no other, uh, no other form of human nature to take. So, in other words, we're all corrupt, born in sin, so therefore Mary was a sinner. Christ took on the substance of her fallen state. In his view, what prevented Christ from sinning was because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and I quote, no one was ever thus anointed with the Holy Ghost to the measure of that Christ was, in other words. He believed that without this restraint of the Holy Spirit, Christ would have succumbed to the corruption of his fallen human substance. Karl Barth, a 20th century theologian, agreed with Irving when he said, and I quote, and just so that you know, if you're completely and utterly confused after this quote, that's a normal thing after reading Barth. You've got to read it 15 times before you understand what he's going on about. I do anyway. This is what he said. There must be no weakening or obscuring of the saving truth that the nature which God assumed in Christ is identical with our nature as we see it in the light of the fall. If it were otherwise, how could Christ be really like us? What concern could we have with him? We stand before God characterized by the fall. God's Son not only assumed our nature, but he entered the concrete form of our nature under which we stand before God as men damned and lost. End quote. In other words, for Christ to be really like us, he would have to have been born with the same fallen human nature as we have and have the capacity to sin for him to truly sympathize with our situation. They're not saying that he did sin. They acknowledge the need for Christ to be sinless, but that he had a fallen nature just like we have. Still others um, take things further than that. Uh, one theologian in talking about this verse, the Hebrews chapter 4 verse that we just read, said, and I quote, this does not necessarily mean, so after basically uh, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was at all points tempted yet without sin, he says this, this does not necessarily mean that Jesus never committed a moral offense in his life, nor that he was sinless prior to the crucifixion. Meaning that on the cross he would have cleansed his own sin as well as ours. Still other scholars, uh, another, one, another scholar asks, how could Jesus in any sense save sinners if he had not fully shared himself in the human condition, including actual participation in the experience of sinning? These comments fly in the face of countless passages of scripture, no less than in Hebrews chapter 7, seven if you go there. Hebrews chapter 7, 26 to 27. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, 
undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for people, for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself up. Nowhere in scripture does it say in order for Christ to be able to redeem fallen humanity that he himself had to be fallen. It is reiterated throughout scripture that Christ was without sin. Again, you can go Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without spot to God, so without blemish, without sin, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So basically what's happening is that what these people are doing, these theologians, and the people who believe in this peccability argument, they're trying to bring God down to our level, to our fallen way of thinking, and saying that he must be a certain way and not accepting that um, God is not confined um, he's not confined to this world and our way of thinking. It's common um, anyone who studies theology and reads these people um, that's a lot of the times we put God on they put God on our level and say he must be this way because it doesn't make sense if he's like that and it's yeah. This is where these errors come out. Now, not all theologians go to the extreme, as, as some of these, to say that Christ must have fallen flesh or that in order for him to be fully human, he would have had to experience sin. But lots of good theologians do believe in order for his temptations to be real, uh, there would have had to have been the possibility that he could have sinned. If a person cannot sin, it doesn't mean that he is not fully human because that would mean that sin is part of the essence of human nature and the implications of that would be that God is the cause of sin. Millard Erickson, another theologian, he's actually in favour of the peccability argument, but he says this, instead of asking, is Jesus as human as we are, we might ask, are we as human as Jesus? The true, true humanity was created, um, that was created by, by God was sinless. And he goes on to say that there were only ever three pure human beings, Adam and Eve before the fall, and Jesus. The rest of us are affected by sin and are corrupt. Our humanity is not the standard. It is actually Christ's humanity that was perfect and sinless and that we are to be measured. The second point is the impeccability argument. Impeccability meaning that Christ could not sin, was not able to sin. This, for the most part, was the, mo- the predominant view up until recent times, which seems to be something that's falling away to the peccability position. But to understand the impeccability uh, to understand impeccability, we have to get to the bottom of who Christ uh, really was. We all know and can say that he was fully God and fully man. But what are the implications of this? John 1.14 says the word became flesh. So the uncreated, eternal second member of the Trinity took our human nature and came, as Paul says in Romans 8.3, 
in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does he mean by that? That he came in the likeness of sinful flesh means that he felt the infirmities that we felt and the emotions that we have. He was hungry, thirsty, tired, he wept, he was angry, and he died. But likeness implies that there is a difference. The difference is is that he did not sin. So the way we say that Christ was fully God and fully man, the way we explain it is he's one person with two natures. His human nature was never separate from his divine nature. And if this is the case, that means that Christ would not be able to sin because his human nature was never separate from the divine nature. If Jesus could sin, then God could sin. And if God could sin, then it's all over for us because there'd be no salvation. And Mark Jones in his book, uh, Knowing Christ, says this, The idea that Jesus could sin is utterly atrocious, indeed blasphemous. The triune God is implicated in all that Jesus does. God is justified by Jesus, glorified by Jesus, and made visible by Jesus. If Jesus could have sinned, God would not be God. If Jesus was able to sin, then it would mean that he would still be able to sin right now because he's forever the God-man. He did not shed his humanity after his ascension into heaven. I understand these things are difficult for us to get our heads around and it probably brings more questions as you think about it when you're trying to wrap your head around it. Theologians argue about it as well and they can't agree. So if your brain's about to explode, it's okay, it's normal. But the Bible makes it clear. Jesus was one person with two natures, very God of very God, very man of very man. He was not born with a sin nature like us. His birth was unique and he grew and lived in perfect obedience to the Father, an obedience that Hebrews 5, 8 says he learned through suffering. We see him growing in Luke 2:52 says he increased in wisdom and stature. Again, in Luke chapter 2, we see where he was sitting with the te- uh, in the temple with the teachers, asking them questions. And when his parents came looking for him and finally found him there, he confounded them when he said, I must be about my father's business. An interesting question would be, uh, did Jesus know he could not sin? Well, he knew the scriptures very well. Um, he quoted scripture during his temptations he taught in the synagogues during his ministry he would have read about himself and learnt about himself as Mark Jones says and as we saw there by the age of 12 in the temple he would have known who he was he would have read verses like Isaiah 53 9 where it says nor was any deceit found in his mouth it could have given him an insight um, also into uh, his coming suffering and death, reading through the Old Testament. In John 8, 58, there is no question that he knew who he was because when he was having this argument with the Pharisees, he ended the argument and the discussion with some powerful and in the eyes of um, the Pharisees' blasphemous words, before Abraham was, I am. Now, by their reaction, they, they knew 
exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. And if he was not God, indeed it would be blasphemous. But he was, and he had been proving it all along. And Christ also could not sin because God is immutable, which means he cannot change. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The theological term, again, there's fancy words. I'm sure you've been in this church long enough that you know there's plenty of fancy words. To describe God, uh, Jesus being fully God and fully man is the, called the hypostatic union, and the two natures are inseparable. God cannot be anything other than he is. And if Christ could sin, then his deity is involved in sinning, which would then contradict God's immutability because he cannot lie. He cannot say one thing and then change that thing about himself. He cannot, if he cannot sin, then he cannot sin. This leads us now to the third point, and that is the, th- um, the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. As we said earlier, this is the thing, the very thing that um, has caused Christ's impeccability to be called into question. So again, were the temptations of Christ real if he couldn't sin? If Christ was not able to sin, uh, then was he not fully human and would that mean the temptations in the wilderness, as Mark Jones said, is a sham? Um, Irving and other, those others I mentioned earlier um, came to the conclusion that he must have had fallen humanity fear was to be truly tempted and therefore able to sin. The problem with this view is that being tempted and sinning are two different things. If, by not being able to sin, did not make Christ human, then Adam wasn't human either, because prior to the fall, he didn't sin. It would mean that Adam only became human after the fall. People can be tempted and not sin. We are tempted. We don't always fall. But it must be made very clear that the temptations that Christ experienced were very real. In fact, they were more real for him because he couldn't sin. The reason for this is because when we are tempted and fall, we do not feel the full force of the temptation because we fall, because we give up, give in. The temptations that Christ went through were much more intense because he was sinless. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, we'll look at um, the temptations. So Matthew chapter 4. Then uh, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, uh, afterward he was hungry. And now... When the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So, stop there for a sec. 
He's in the, gone into the wilderness 40 days. He's, led, he's gone there, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Hasn't eaten for 40 days. Now, I don't know. I don't know what that's like. I can't handle not eating for 40 minutes. So 40 days would be pretty bad. Um, recently, I can't remember what country it was. I don't know if you read this, but there was this pastor in some country. I can't remember where. He tried to emulate this um, 40 days feast. No food and no water. He didn't make it. He did. So you can imagine... Um, you can imagine what Christ would be going through after 40 days of no food and then being tempted like this. Satan says, if you are the son of God, turn the the command that these stones become bread. He could have. He turned water into wine. He could have done it. Um, but he had to obey God fully as a man and not rely on his uh, divine nature. Unlike Adam and Eve, who at this point failed in the garden, Jesus resisted and refused to eat that which seemed to be good and answered Satan by quoting scripture. And it's Deuteronomy, I think, the first one is 8.3. Thanks, John MacArthur. I think it's 8.3. He said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He totally had to rely on God that he would provide for him. And in the right time he did, when we see at the end of the um, uh, temptations that angels came to minister to him. In the second temptation, Satan tells Jesus to bow down and worship him. He says here in um, verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Even Satan can quote scripture there, but obviously twisting it. Jesus was on his way to the cross. That was his mission. He's on his way to the cross. What was coming in the future for him was suffering and death. It wasn't going to be nice. Death on a cross. Satan tried to tempt him to take the easy way out to worship him and he would give him everything. Once again, Jesus quoted scripture and said, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In the third temptation, in verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. See, Again, Satan offered him an easy easy path, offered him an easy way, easy way out, not to go through his ministry, the things that he would have to go through, give him the glory of being rescued by God and 
and they, you can only imagine if that would have happened, but God would never have allowed that. And Jesus had to, had to resist. As a man had to re- resist these temptations as a man. And he did also by quoting scripture once again, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, how are we to understand this? People still have a problem with his impeccability, even after all this. Even after reading through the temptations in the wilderness, there's still an issue. But as has been said before, Christ didn't have to sin to be human. He felt the full intensity of those temptations because he was fully human. He was hungry and tired and he knew what his mission was going to be and it wasn't pretty. Satan tried to get him not to rely on God to to get out of that and to eventually, if he was to fall in a temptation, then that would be it. John Murray puts it like this. It was his impeccable holiness that added intensity to the grief of temptation. For the holier the person is, the more excruciating is his encounter with solicitation of the opposite. What we can take from this is that we can have full reliance on God in whatever trial or temptation we face. We can, we, God can be trusted and we, um, by faith, must trust him rather than what we can see, like Christ did in the temptations, trusted in God that he would um, get him through those temptations. The temptations of Christ in the wilderness ended with the angels coming to minister to him just at the right time. So the conclusion for that is that Christ was impeccable. I believe that Christ was impeccable and not able to sin. And I don't believe that that has any effect on his humanity at all. I don't see, I don't find the problems that those people have with impeccability. I don't see what the issue is really. The temptations that he experienced were real. They were more intense than any of us will ever experience. It's a difficult thing to understand. There's certainly mystery surrounding. Um, but the temptations were real. He really did feel them and go through them and harder than any of us would ever have to, will ever have to. Um, for us, our temptations generally generally come from within and, and our desires, as Mark Jones says, lure us away that give birth to sins such as unbelief and sinful lusts. Christ did not have those sinful impulses, but Satan tried to attack Jesus on his infirmities. Being hungry and close to death and not eating after 40 days, he wanted Jesus not to rely on God and for one moment desire the bread to sustain him. So why, why does this argument matter? Isn't it just a bunch of uh, theologians arguing about nothing? 
arguing about things when they do back and forth all the time. We know that Christ is sinless. Isn't that good enough? Sometimes, um, sometimes it does feel like this, but um, what is amazing about God and the scriptures and the story of redemption that runs through all of scripture, um, it, it, it's mind, mind-blowing, mind-boggling when you really put it together because for the unbeliever, the Bible is just incoherent. It's an incoherent, incoherent book full of so-called contradictions. At best, it contains some factual history. In that superficial view, that's how it is. Even for Christians, it could be just a book of moral teachings and, you know, help us get through life. I've got my favourite verse or whatever for today. But when it comes to theology, I think Todd was saying it this morning, and systematic theology, and we're, a lot of us are studying it now on during the week, there are big words it is hard to understand sometimes. And you think that you have to be an academic to, to know it and to understand it. I'm not an academic. I'm an academic. But when you love something, you'll study it and you'll get to, you'll get to know it and put the effort in. And when you put the effort in to study it, when you tackle the, uh, these dif- difficult doctrines and, and put up with the hard words and get to, you know, words that you can't pronounce and they're in all funny languages and whatever, you see this amazing story running through Scripture. Both from the, from the Old to the New Testament, humanity is lost, fallen, is dead in trespasses and sins. And from, the, and from before the beginning of time, God had ordained that, he would, he, that we would be redeemed by the blood of Christ who was both fully God and fully man. He humbled himself as a lowly man could die this horrible death on the cross so that those who believe could be saved. He can sympathize with us because he was one of us, truly tempted more intensely than any of us so that he could truly offer, be the sacrifice on our behalf. It's amazing actually. Really amazing. Like we said in our little home group talking about this, you can't make this stuff up. If the Bible is made up as some the atheists or whoever say somebody just slapped it together, then he's a genius. Because that story runs from the beginning to the end. It's absolutely amazing, really, when you delve deep and think about it. When you get... Re- when you forget the surface level of scripture and you go really deep down, it's absolutely, I, I just, it's amazing. And I think anyone who's doing the home groups knows that. When you do systematic theology, it's just like, wow, you have no, had no idea this was, this was even a thing. So close, in closing, I don't know, was that 15 minutes or something? I don't know, I feel quick. I don't know. Anyway. Lucky you. Um, God's, I'll just say this to end. God's plan of salvation makes us realize how sinful and insignificant we really are. So when you put all that together, that's what, I'm, what I mean is when you put all that together, we're just insignificant, we're just dust. We say that all the time, but you really, when you really, really understand, we just, we're nothing. But how grateful is it that he had a plan to save us? It is 
um, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I don't know what else to say, but yeah. So anyway, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you. Um, thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for your word that teaches us these things. Thank you that we can look at it and learn all these difficult doctrines, but understand what you have done for us. Um, just pray, Lord, um, help us to always trust in you no matter what. We know that you know what we are going through and what we are, what it is like to be living on this earth and be like us, Lord, we pray. Thank you so much again for your son, for what he did on that cross for us, we pray. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.